Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Everybody and welcome to Fruit Loops Season 2, Episode 24. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we do not hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are white. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers of color and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims, let's not forget, that media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist, allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a Mm -hmm. couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. That's right. All the things, Fruit Loops Pod. Now, if you want to support the show, you can do so by sending us a donation on the Cash App, uh, which you can download to your phone, and you can find online at cash.me slash dollar sign Fruit Loops Pod, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. We also have some merch for sale on our website at fruitloopspod.com slash merch. And if you can't help monetarily, no problem. You can always give us a five-star review on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And be sure to share our show with your friends. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today is going to be part one of a story about Kendall Francois, also known as the Poughkeepsie Killer, a serial killer from Poughkeepsie, New York, convicted of killing eight women from 1996 to 1998. All right. So how you doing? 
I'm all right. I'm really <laughs> glad tax day is over with. <laughs> oh, yes. <Ugh. laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm super happy that Game of Thrones is back, though I'm also a little scared because I don't know how I'm going to feel when it's all over. I'm probably going to be really, really sad. Oh, no. Well, I'm excited about them <laughs> thrones being back. I mean, I have oh, watched yeah. the, new, the first episode twice. <laughs> and I've also listened to at least four different podcasts about it to get different <laughs> takes. <laughs> all, all in the past 24 hours. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Right on. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I am super excited to watch it. But yeah. uh, I, I feel like I'm going to be really sad when it's over. Oh, don't think about the letdown. Think about the I now. The, the, Just the, the now. here and now. Live yeah. in the now. <laughs> yeah, that's right, man. That's right, baby. All right. So, uh, well, good. Uh, taxes are done and Game of Thrones is back and all is right with the world, right? Well. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, let's not talk about it. Now we're going to get into some listener letters. Let's see. Okay. The there we go. There we Thank go. You, angels. All right. <laughs> all right. So I wanted to give a special thanks to Brad, who recommended this case and with whom we corresponded to get a little more information because Brad went to school where Francois was a hall monitor and he actually mm -hmm. knew him. He said that as a student, he had the typical type of school interactions with him, like getting caught out during class, swearing in the halls, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Though he vaguely remembers having short personal conversations with him, probably of the, hey, how you doing, everyday variety. Uh, nothing remarkable that he can recall. But the things that really stood out to Brad about him were the things that stood out to everybody, I think, was oh my his gosh. size... And his body odor. That's crazy that he knew this guy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and here I'm going to quote Brad. He said, the day his arrest was announced, I can remember sitting in my living room and hearing suspected serial killer has been apprehended in Poughkeepsie and my head snapping to the TV so fast I nearly broke my neck. <laughs> <laughs> my mother was nearby when they showed a picture and i said holy shit that's mr francois <laughs> oh damn now, <laughs> now my mother swears maybe once every three years but she let out an unrepeatable string of choice words that day <laughs> Oh, me. Oh, my. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oddly enough, given that it was right in my backyard, uh, Francois lived a couple of houses down from uh, Brad's grandmother. The case oh. never grabbed my attention the way others did at the time. He was just a guy. Weird. And uh, that that does have to be really weird when someone you mm -hmm. know, an ordinary person you see almost on a daily basis, uh, turns out to be a serial killer. That has to be really weird. Yeah, totally. I went to junior high with a girl whose dad was a serial killer in um, <gasps> Spokane. Oh, man. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, I can't even remember her. I can't even remember her name. But I mean, I mean I'm wondering if you look up. Spokane serial killers if you'll find them but um I I I kind of get what Brad is saying like this whole time we thought we were just around this regular schmegular degular like person and next thing you know there's some fuckery going on um so yeah. just right in your backyard so it is it is wild I wonder if other listeners out there have like a um like a story like, like and, that, and it yeah. was him the whole time yeah like if you do yeah. please get at it yeah i want i want to know yeah <laughs> do you have like i would that? too um the only thing i can think of is not a serial killer but um my daughter went to school with a girl who um they they kind of ran in the same circles they knew each other to say hi but um they didn't they weren't like really good friends or anything like that she mm -hmm. ended up uh, killing her boyfriend Whoa. Yeah. Oh, that's a story. Yeah. Well, have your daughter get at us <laughs> so we can read it on the show. Um, so anyway, Brad, thank you so much. Now we are going to get into an ad break and then we're going to dive into the story. We would like to invite any listeners who have a business to advertise to do it with us. For more information, please email us at fruitloopspod at gmail.com 
or check out our website at fruitloopspod.com. All right. So uh, who is our subject today, Beth? Today we're talking about Kendall Francois, also known as the Poughkeepsie Killer. And this is going to be part one. And next week we will be covering part two. So Francois was a serial killer from Poughkeepsie, New York, convicted of killing eight women from 1996 to 1998. He was a hoarder, a school janitor, and had a Jekyll and Hyde type of personality. All right. So now we're going to get into some stats. All right. My favorite part. Um, Kendall Francois, a.k.a. the Poughkeepsie Killer. Um, he didn't shoot anybody. I just like that, that sound effect. Uh, he was a serial killer. Um, when it, what interested me most in this case was that he hid all of the bodies in his parents' house when his parents lived there. Um, and they never like suspected it. Um, he had eight female victims. I believe almost all of them were white or is, I think all of, all of them were white. All of them were white. Okay. Uh, his crimes took place from 1996 to 1998. He was arrested on September 1st, 1998. Uh, victims were all white women, again, with uh, addictions. Some were sex workers. Uh, and Francois was well known to the women in the sex worker world. We'll get into that later. Um, he had some form of erectile dysfunction. And when a sex worker would call him out on it, on the fact that he was taking too long to finish, uh, that's when he would snap. Um, victims, here are their names. Speak them loud because they uh, matter. Wendy Myers, 30. Gina Barone, 29. Catherine Marsh, 31. Uh, Kathleen Hurley, 47, Mary Healy Giacone, 29, Sandra Jean French, 51, Katina Newmaster was 25, and Audrey Pugelis was 34. Uh, all these crimes occurred in Poughkeeps, New York, and he was sentenced to 11 life sentences and uh, ended up dying of HIV in prison. So now we are going to dive into the setting. Beth is going to take us there. What do you got, Beth? <laughs> So the settings Poughkeepsie, uh, New York in the mid 1990s. Poughkeepsie is a small city located on the banks of the Hudson River, about 90 miles north of New York City. The population at the time was approximately 28,000. The name Poughkeepsie derives from a word in the Wappinger language. The Wappinger were an Eastern Algonquin-speaking tribe from New York and Connecticut. They lived on the east bank of the Hudson River, eastward to the Connecticut River Valley. I've never been, but it, um... it's beautiful. Is it? Yeah, it's gorgeous. Oh, okay. Okay. It's quaint... Uh -huh. Lots of trees and in the fall, uh, it's mm. just gorgeous. The leaves turn and you get all the colors there. Uh, the mm. reds and the oranges and the yellows, all of them. It's beautiful. You're going to have to count me out for the fall and the winter. Um, <laughs> first of all, I don't like going outside all that much. Uh, second of all, I, uh, I'm pretty traumatized. When I lived with my, my, my dad in Spokane, um, he had this really like intense drive to have his kids be hard workers. So we would have to do yard work all year long, every weekend. And I, I resent plants and trees and grass. <laughs> and I said, when I grow All up of it. and I get my own house, I'm not going to have any grass. And hence Arizona. <laughs> I have a front yard full of rocks. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no leaves for raking. So you can keep those colorful leaves to yourself. <laughs> well, what if you're just visiting and just looking at them? Sounds cold and like I need a jacket. So no, thank you. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> unless Poughkeepsie would like us to do a live show, then we're there. <laughs> in which case, yeah, in which maybe case, we'll, we'll come in the summer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so Poughkeepsie was settled in the 17th century by the Dutch and became New York's second capital uh, shortly after the American Revolution. In 1788, uh, the Ratification Convention for New York State, which included Alexander Hamilton, Hamilton, John Jay. Oh. <laughs> Hamilton wrote, 
I'm a 51. <laughs> you know, the Federalist Papers and whatnot. Yes. Anyway, that's my favorite part. And uh, George Clinton, <laughs> not the rock star, assembled at the courthouse on Market Street, debated and ratified the U.S. Constitution. With its ratification, New York entered the new union as the 11th of the original 13 colonies to join together as the United States of America. Isn't it beautiful? Poughkeepsie was charted as city as a city in 1854. Poughkeepsie is home to Vassar College, which began as a women's college and is part of the Seven Sisters, the name given to colleges founded between 1837 and 1889 that are historically women's colleges. Many of the existing Seven Sisters colleges are still female only, but Vassar is now coeducational. It's a private college, and although not considered one of the Ivy League colleges, it's on par with them, meaning it's super expensive and selective. <laughs> and a large percentage of graduates go on to attend graduate law or medical school. A lot of them are also not people of color. Yes. I wonder when um, Vassar integrated, you know, like when they started letting in women of color. Curious. I don't know the answer. That I don't know. I was going to say they went co-educational in the 60s. Still doesn't mean they let in POCs. No, no. (laughs) That I I did not see. I was just Mm -hmm. uh, looking at when they became co-educational, so... Yeah. Well, it's a history that if you go to a big institution, they don't they don't they don't advertise. We finally like got our shit together and finally started letting in minorities (laughs) this year. Be proud of us. (laughs) So anyway, uh, but uh, Poughkeepsie has a darker side. In the 1990s, there was a small but persistent drug trade centered in the downtown area that periodically erupted into violence. Sex workers could often be seen working the same area, and shootings were not uncommon. So although Poughkeepsie is the type of town that is thought of as quaint, cute, white picket fence type of community with all kinds of colored leaves, as Beth described earlier, there are parts of the city that are like many poor, neglected black and brown communities throughout the United States that deal with issues of sex trafficking, substances trafficking and abuse, low income, crime and poor education. Um, So now we're going to get into the killer's early life to see what might have shaped this young man. So Take it away, Beth. Kendall Francois was born on July 26, 1971, in Poughkeepsie, New York, the son of McKinley and Paulette Francois. He had an older brother, Aubrey, and he had a younger sister named Kirsten. His father worked at a factory, and his mother was a nurse at a local psychiatric center as a career counselor for youth. His parents were hoarders. Interesting. I always wonder about what, uh, like, ho- did you ever watch the show Hoarders on AMC? Um, you know, my my daughter really liked watching those kinds of shows, and sometimes uh-huh. uh, she would have it on, and I'd watch it. But those kind of shows depress me, so I don't. Oh. I don't tend to watch them myself. Oh well, I'm always just fascinated by wh- what how what makes people become hoarders. You know, how do they? How, what, what, what is it that triggered them to be like, I can never let go of, I can't let go of any of these things? Yeah, I think it's uh, probably, I'm just guessing, I'm just throwing this out there. Um, Some kind of loss, loss of control kind of thing. But then also, I think they also, um, it, it gets like completely out of hand. And then they, they don't even know how to begin. I know I, my daughter, um, she's she's really into organizing and and cleaning mm-hmm. things up and making everything nice. And I'm not, and so I drive her a little bit nuts. And the, <laughs> the garage, our, uh-huh. our my garage is is a bit of a mess. And and uh, yeah, she would she would bug me to to clean it clean it up and you know straighten it out and I would go mm-hmm. in there and just look at everything and be like I, I don't even know where to start you know what? so I would just leave Did it, not today <laughs> Satan. yeah yeah uh, <laughs> not today so I think that's part of it it just gets out of control and then they don't even know what 
what to do about it. There's that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. There's that. But also what I noticed when watching these kinds of shows is that when they, when the producers do bring in somebody to help them clean, and then there's another like psychologist person there, like a mental health professional, and then somebody who's like an expert in organizing. Um, Yeah. And um, the people have extreme attachments, like emotional attachments to Things yeah, they don't want to let go of anything. Yeah. Like trash. Yeah. Like yeah, they garbage. Just can't, yeah. Let uh, I remember one show that the, they were cleaning out this lady's refrigerator and there was like rotting food in there. And she was like, oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. You know, it's like, it's, yeah. it's fucking rotting food, lady. Um, but yeah. Yeah. like I said, I think it's like a, a loss of control. They just don't, they, they can't let go of anything. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't really understand it. Hey, but I we've already said probably... we're not psychologists. Okay. No, <laughs> we no, just... we're just throwing shit out there. Yeah. We're throwing shit on the wall, seeing if yeah. it sticks. <laughs> so, <laughs> Much so, like um, the Francoise. <laughs> there you go. Good segue. During his education, he uh, had academic, social, or uh, discipline problems included including being teased or picked on now he was made fun of by the other children because of his weight um his large stature things that he couldn't control and his body odor which uh, is said to have been very pungent uh he did not talk much he mostly kept to himself and had no close friends or girlfriends um and given his living situation right he couldn't just like invite friends over um yeah according to brad uh, he didn't come across as particularly uh, like a warm or happy person. Uh, quite the opposite, actually. Brad, our our homie from um, earlier in the episode, but also didn't come across as a threat. Um, and I heard him referred to as a gentle giant. After graduating high school in 1989, Francois joined the Army and was stationed at Fort Sill in Oklahoma and then later in Honolulu. Interestingly, there was a serial killer operating in Honolulu in the 80s, the Mm -hmm. Honolulu Strangler, who has never been caught. Police have looked into this connection, but they don't believe that Francois was the killer. And I'm pretty sure that the times are off, so it it doesn't doesn't work out. Hmm. The math is is not correct. (laughs) Does not compute. (laughs) Yes, does not compute. Yeah. Um, cause that one's unsolved. We would love to do that story, but it's just yeah, not, it's not it's in our unsolved. bag right now doing unsolved. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, in 1994, Francois was discharged from the army and returned home to Poughkeepsie, moving back in with his parents and sister at 99 Fulton Avenue. He got a job as a middle school custodian, later a hall monitor at Arlington middle school. I wonder what their mascot was. Some teachers at the school complained about Kendall's behavior, especially toward the female students. He often played with the girls in an inappropriate manner, touching their hair and telling sexual jokes. Um, Not cool. That's not okay anymore. But this was the 90s. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But still not cool. Um, Known for his poor personal hygiene, the kids began to call Francois stinky because of his body odor. And again, according to Brad, the things that really stood out about him were his size and his body odor. And it usually didn't take much longer for you to notice the odor than the size. Um, It was potent and some students were pretty cruel about it. I can only imagine kids are fucking assholes. They're they're Um, mean. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really cruel. Um, at the time, at the same time, uh, Francois began to frequent Poughkeepsie's red light district and used the services of local sex workers regularly. It has been reported that some of the sex workers also began to refer to him by the nickname Stinky, and they noted that he enjoyed very rough sex. Uh, he was also reportedly slow to finish or climax, which, if a sex worker commented on that, would cause Francois to snap. And I must say, I mean, I can see why he turned to sex work. He was probably pretty lonely. Yeah. Um, and if he wasn't able to f- form normal relationships with the people around him other than his family, then, I mean, yeah. what else are you going to do? Yeah. You know? I don't know. Yeah. I-, I think that's that's true. Yeah.
so now we're going to get into the timeline. Uh, so when did this all begin? When did the terror begin? Well, on October 24th, 1996, Wendy Myers, age 30, was reported missing to the police in the town of Lloyd, located across the Hudson from Poughkeepsie. Myers was described as a white female with a slim build, hazel eyes, and short brown hair. She was last seen in the Valley Rest Motel in Highland, a small town situated near the banks of the Hudson River south of Kingston. And um, I was going to say, uh, we'll obviously get into this as we dive into the timeline more, but most of his victims were, they were, we already know they were all white ladies, but they were all slim, slim and small. Um, build. Yes. Um, yeah, they all had um, a very, very similar stature. And uh, I think they all had brown hair, too. I think you you are correct in that, but I wasn't 100% positive. So I yeah, wasn't I'm not 100% <laughs> either, but I think they all looked very similar. Yeah, my understanding from listening to that woman who uh, spent um, a, some time interviewing him um, on more than one occasion for her book, something about a spider and a fly. We'll get to it later. Anyway, on December 9th, <laughs> 1996, Gina Barone was reported missing by her mother, Patricia Barone. Gina was 29 years old and a sex worker. She had a daughter, but because of her alcohol and drug addiction, couldn't raise her. So her mom was raising her. I think the baby was about two at the time. Gina had a small build, brown hair, and an eagle tattooed on her back. On uh, her arm, she had another tattoo that read simply, now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. How we care for our minds affects how we experience life. So it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. There are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, like learning a new language or taking power naps. But there's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. Now, we are huge advocates for mental health here at Fruit oh, yeah. HQ. Oh, yes. And we have both used therapy throughout our lives, including BetterHelp. And especially in these past several years to help us deal with challenging times, mm -hmm. challenging thoughts, feelings and experiences. Amen. Yes. And uh, now I had a recent, you know, conversation with my therapist. She was saying sometimes it's just good to talk and get some perspective. You don't yeah. have to go to a therapist just because stuff is wrong. So Right, right. And BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat only therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And some people get really anxious about that. So Oh, yes. And it is much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash fruit. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash fruit. P-O-P. Not sure what it stands for. Um, she was last seen on November 29th in 1996 in Poughkeepsie when she and her boyfriend had gotten into an argument and she told him to get lost. Uh, he left, but then came back to look for her and she was gone. The missing persons report was filed with the city of Poughkeepsie Police Department and assigned to the detective division. And it was suggested to Gina's mom that maybe she just left town. Patricia did not believe that as her daughter was not known to do that sort of thing. And when on January 1st, 1997, Detective Lieutenant Bill Segrist, a 29-year veteran of the department, took command of the division, the investigation took a sharp turn. Here we go. Although Wendy Myers' disappearance was filed with the town of Lloyd Police Department, she was well known to Poughkeepsie Police and frequented the downtown area of the city. Lieutenant Segrist became interested in the two missing persons cases. It seemed implausible to him that the two girls who traveled in the same circles in the same city should suddenly disappear. All right, Hip Hop Airhorn, Lieutenant Lieutenant Segrist. There it is. All right. All right. Come through. <laughs> um, it seemed like more than a coincidence to him. That's good police work. However, there was pressure within the department not to waste manpower on a case involving missing sex workers. Um, yeah. Again, problematic. There. Yeah. Which is sad. Then on January 15th, 1997, Kathleen Hurley, 47, was reported missing. She was last seen walking along Main Street in the downtown area in Poughkeepsie. Hurley, like the others, was white, had brown hair, and a small build. The letters CJ were tattooed on her left bicep. 
Although it is not unusual for police to receive missing persons reports, the three cases, Hurley, Myers, and Barone, seemed related. Way to go, guys. But people are reported missing for many reasons. Family disputes, simple runaways, drugs, and nomadic lifestyles are just a few of those reasons. Um, but they're too, <laughs> there's just too, too many things in common here, guys. <laughs> right yeah, to be yeah. one of those things. Yeah. Sometimes people are arrested in other jurisdictions and they neglect to notify their families. In other cases, people will simply move on to new areas only to return a short time later. In most cases, the missing persons turn up within a few days and the report is subsequently canceled. In most cases, I guess, but most cases. Yeah. Yeah. What if? What if it doesn't? Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? I always wonder. I, yeah. I always see it on TV. They're like, ah, you know, they'll come back. And then, you know, next thing you know, they're on the first 48. And, and uh, yeah. they never did come it's, back. You, you're that one family that, it, that that is in the minority. And that, that, that's awful. Um, yeah. My daughter, one time, uh, she snuck out in the middle of the night. and uh, Oh, my God. Yeah. And when I got up in the morning, she wasn't she wasn't home. And uh, I freaked out. Yeah, um, Santa and I Maria. called oh the I called the police. Yeah, and uh-huh. they came and took a report and everything. And uh, she did show up. Like I don't know, like an hour after the cops left. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but that's, that's, yeah, that but little goodness, that little so and so. I think she was like uh, sixteen or seventeen. Oh my Uh, gosh. Teenagers are the worst. (laughs) Oh, well, (laughs) so, um, I lost my husband one time and, uh, you lost him. Yes. Uh, like you were out. No, no, no. Uh, we were, we were at home and then I fell asleep, AKA drank too much and went to sleep. And then, um, when I woke up in the morning, he wasn't there and he wasn't answering his phone. And, Turns out he went to like he got a call after I went to sleep because he was like bored, I guess, and went to a friend's house to go play dominoes. It's like he, he'll drop everything <laughs> to go play dominoes. And uh, <laughs> he was he he didn't want to drive home, so he slept in the car. And uh, like, I guess he, he, when he did wake up, he just wanted to get home and he said he didn't want to pick up his phone. And I like was calling hospitals. I was calling jails. Um, I was calling like our friends. Like, have you guys heard, heard from him or seen him? Uh, And then he, he, he finally calls me back when he's like almost home and is like, I'm so sorry. I didn't want to pick up the phone. I just wanted to get home safely. You know, I, I, I partied too much last night. You know, we, I mean, we both did. Yeah, we were real, yeah. This was like 10 years ago. Um, yeah. And so anyway, um, it is a very not good feeling when you think the worst of your family. And I feel really bad yeah. um, when it ends up being these cases where um, your loved it, one. It's who, not like, like our, our not, situation where it turned out. It's not like okay. our situation or like what the police say. Oh, they'll always come back. You know what I mean? Yeah. Cause it doesn't always yeah. happen like that. That was a long yep. tangent. Um, yep. Lu- where are we? <laughs> <laughs> but Lieutenant okay. Segrist, yeah, you're there. Okay. But Lieutenant Segrist felt that these disappearances were related and he made an inquiry to the Neighborhood Recovery Unit, or NRU, which is the department's narcotic unit. The NRU made inquiries with the local sex workers and reported back to Lieutenant Segrist that some of the women were complaining of a local man who was rough with the women and had been known to be violent during sex. This, uh, there was an allegation that he had threatened a woman with a knife, but the victim would not come forward to make a complaint. They said his name was Kendall Francois, and he lived over on Fulton Avenue in the town of Poughkeepsie, just minutes from the city's downtown area. He was a big guy, about six foot four and around 350 to 400 pounds. On hearing this information, Lieutenant Secrest then contacted the town of Poughkeepsie police and made an inquiry about Francois. They reported that Francois had recently been the subject of an assault complaint 
by a sex worker. Detectives decided to maintain a video and periodic surveillance of Francois's home at 99 Fulton Avenue. But after several weeks of watching the residence in January 1997, no new information was developed. One sex worker cooperated with the police and allowed herself to be wired up and meet with Francois. The woman worked her usual spots in the city's downtown area until Francois arrived in his white Toyota Camry. Although she had clear instructions not to get into his vehicle, the woman engaged Francois in conversation on a number of occasions. Police monitored these meetings, but again, no useful information was obtained. On March 7th, 1997, a woman named Catherine Marsh was reported missing by her mother. She was last seen on November 12th, 1996, also in Poughkeepsie. Four months had passed since she was last seen alive. Like the other women, she was white with a small build. She had blue eyes and brown hair. Her clothes and personal items were still at her apartment. Police were concerned about the rash of recent missing persons, as now it seemed obvious that it was much more than a coincidence. They searched wooded areas, the Hudson River shoreline, train tracks, and different areas where the sex workers were known to take their johns. And now they were searching for bodies or graves rather than living persons. They also monitored Jane Doe listings to try and locate the women, but had no success. A month later, Poughkeepsie police made a decision to contact the FBI for help. Although the FBI investigators were interested, they were limited by the circumstances of the case. See, in order to establish a profile of a suspect, they need a crime scene. And there was no crime scene. Then in November of 1997, Mary Healy Giacconi was reported missing. Her mother had died the previous month, and her father, a retired New York State corrections officer, came to the police to ask for help in locating Mary so he could tell his daughter of her mother's death. That's sad. Yeah, very much so. Police soon discovered that she was actually last seen alive in February of 1997 on the same Poughkeepsie streets as some of the others. Okay, so um, that's uh, it for the timeline. Now we're going to get into the investigation. Um, So here we go. In December 1997, the Poughkeepsie Journal published a story about the missing women. The headline was... Is there a killer on the loose? There was approximately a year after Gina Barone had gone missing. The story, unfortunately, brought no new information to the surface. On January 18, 1998, police followed Francois in his car. After he dropped his mother off at work, they pulled him over and asked if he would come into the station to answer some questions. He agreed. They had already set up an interview room with a map on the wall with his house circled, photos of his home and of him, and photos of the missing women displayed so that when he came in, he would know that he's a suspect. Investigators expected Francois to be nervous, but he was not. He calmly and respectfully answered all of their questions, and he even agreed to take a polygraph test. Police questioned him about the woman who claimed that he had threatened her with a knife. At first, he completely denied it, but then he said, it wasn't a knife, it was a nail file and police asked him to produce the nail file. Francois agreed to allow one detective to accompany him into his home to produce the nail file. The detective who did accompany him was shocked at the condition of the home, which was in complete disarray. There was rotting food all over the counters. The sinks were full of dirty dishes. There was garbage in piles, clothes strewn all over, and there were roaches and maggots everywhere. Oh my God, I can't imagine. Disgusting. Oh wait, yeah, yeah, yeah I've seen it on Hoarders. But uh, the detective <laughs> did not did <laughs> the detective did not see anything incriminating there. Francois couldn't find the nail file in his room, and he would not allow the detective to go into any of the other rooms. The detective did try to go down into the basement, but Francois stopped him before he could get down the stairs and became visibly upset. He was then taken to police headquarters where he was given a polygraph exam and he passed it. When Francois passed the polygraph, investigators became less interested in pursuing him as a suspect. They figured the perpetrator was probably white anyway, since it's an anomaly for serial killers to cross racial lines, though it's not unheard of. Hence, Fruit Loops, guys. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
probably a white guy anyway. Go ahead, big blackie. You could go on and be about your business. <laughs> That's really messed up. Um, and lazy police work. Here for a second, I thought they were on a roll. And boy, boy, did that take a turn. Um, well, I think it's because he, he passed the polygraph exam, which um, there's a reason why it's not allowed in a court of law, because it's not reliable. Mm-hmm. And people mm-hmm. can pass it even though they're lying. And some people can fail it even though they're telling the truth. So, uh, but I think the police do rely on it too much. And when he yeah. passed it, they're like, Oh, it's not him. So. Yeah. And perhaps, perhaps, I don't know at what point polygraphs were no longer allowed at, in court. Um, but that's maybe. true. Yeah. I don't know when that changed. But I think it was so before, maybe. I think it was before this time. Okay. Well, there we have it. Police then became interested in investigating another suspect named Roy Chandler. He had an extensive criminal history of assaults, rape, and possible murder. And it sounds like he was also a white guy. He was from South Carolina, and they spoke to police in South Carolina who advised that he was a good suspect. Chandler had been living in the woods. They had him take them to different areas where he had been camping, but they found no evidence. Police then formed a task force to investigate the missing women. On June 12, 1998, Sandra Jean French, a 51-year-old mother of three, disappeared from nearby Dover. Her car was found abandoned three days later in Poughkeepsie, about three blocks from Francois' home. Wow, so he kept going even after he was taken into police custody. The police went to his house and he took mm-hmm. a polygraph test. Can you imagine how yep. confident he must have felt after all of that? Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, on August 25th, 1998, Katina Newmaster, mother of five, disappeared. The circumstances fit with many of those of the other missing women. She frequented the same streets of downtown Poughkeepsie, where she was last seen. She was a sex worker and drug addict, and she physically resembled the other women who had been reported missing. So that's where we have to tie up the story for today. We're going to leave it there. Be sure to tune in next week for the rest of the story. So now we are going to get into our how not to get murdered. So (laughs) if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. But in my mind, this is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's mistakes. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode, and then we'll just offer up generic tips. Okay, so um, since there was sex work and addiction involved in this episode, we've in the past given substance abuse and sex trafficking, safe sex work tips. Um, But it's been a while. So um, I just wanted to um, shout out some new resources that I've uncovered. Um, Now, this is for people in the United States. So if you or someone you know is suffering from an addiction, call 1-888-5-HUNTER or 1-888-548-6837. It was created by Wendy Williams. There we go. (laughs) Um, And uh, her soon-to-be ex-husband, as we know, Wendy Williams has been suffering publicly from um, her battles with addiction. And the Hunter Foundation um, is something she created with with her family um, that will actually connect you with a detox or treatment facility. Um, And so all you have to do is call the number, be like, here's where I am, here's my situation, set me up with some treatment and then they will help you navigate insurance and finding a place. And my understanding is that, uh, well, this is an old, old number, but when she last announced it, she said they've, they've helped over 60 people and they just launched a few months ago. So that's pretty cool. Um, also for, 
forced sex work, while many sex workers are essentially trafficked against their will illegally and suffering from abuse, there are also sex workers who do so because they want to and they have agency over themselves and their bodies and they just want to work and be safe just like you and I go to the office every day. We just want to do our jobs and be safe and, and earn yep. a living. Um, so uh, I found um, Sex Worker Outreach Project USA, a.k.a. SWAP, uh, is a human rights organization fighting for the respect and safety of sex workers. Um, they uh, have a website. It is uh, swap.org. We'll link it up into the show notes. Um, but on the other side of the sex trade, um, for those who are in it involuntarily against their will. Um, if you are being human trafficked or you know somebody who might be, um, you can call the National Human Trafficking Resource Center. It's 24 7 availability at 1 888. <laughs> There's too many eights. Okay. 1 888 3737 888. Wait. Wait. It's that's all fucked eights. up. No, yeah, okay. it's look all at the, fucked up. Look at the up. one in parentheses. Okay, all right. One eight 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 three seven three seven eight eight eight. Yeah, what Beth said. Or that one. You can t- you can text help or info to be free. That's uh, the number is two three three seven three three. Help or info to be free. Um, so that's all I got. All right. So I I also wanted to mention that in reaction to last week's tips, um, when we were talking about uh, being followed by somebody Mm -hmm. in a car, if you're driving and being followed, um, Mm -hmm. Connie in our Facebook group said, um, and I believe that she is a 911 dispatcher. So um, dope. Yeah. Uh, So she said, if you're being followed in a vehicle in Phoenix, Call 911, um, take right-hand turns at every major intersection, and stay Ooh, on the phone. One. That is really good. Now, in a lot of other places, like Phoenix is kind of awesome because everything is laid out in a grid. Um, right. North, south, east, west. But mm-hmm. I've lived in other places, like on the east coast, where it's like uh, noodles. <laughs> it's like they took a bunch of noodles <laughs> and threw them out, threw them down on the ground, and had <laughs> roads. <your> roads. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so it, you know, you might be able to do this some other places, but um, I, I think it's a great idea. Just go around in a circle. And if the person following you goes away, you don't need to make contact with the police. But (laughs) she also said she totally understands the reluctance to call police. But your 911 dispatchers really do care and want you to be safe. Well, I certainly appreciate that. Thank you, 911 dispatchers. Can you make sure only the nice, not racist cops show up if I do need help? (laughs) (laughs) You can drop that. Connie, thank you so much for getting at us. Yeah, but I still have a little concerned. (laughs) Yeah. So um, now we are going to get into some serial killer and crime news. Um, So what what did you find, Beth? Well, I I read a story today about a, a transgender woman in Dallas, Texas, who was attacked by a mob last Friday on April 12th. Um, what? Malaysia Booker's attack is being investigated as a possible hate crime. And they better investigate it as a hate crime. Hell yeah. Uh, there's a video. and Jesus uh, Yeah. And they're reluctant to call it a hate crime? Isn't that crazy? It is because the video is really disturbing and scary. The crowd is huge and they are using homophobic slurs. Um, So it seems pretty obvious to me that it's a hate crime. Okay. Just some men came up to her and started beating her. And some (gasps) women intervened and carried her away. But there's Mm -hmm. other women in the crowd that are being just as hateful as the men. And um, I just can't believe this kind of thing is still happening in 2019. Um, I mean, baffling. Well, I do believe it because of all the shit that's going down right now. But it seems like we should be so much farther along by now. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Anyway, I was uh, reminded of something that I saw posted on Facebook. I don't know. 
couple weeks ago. It was something mm-hmm. like, uh, God grant me the courage of a transgender person, not the cowardice of a guns rights nut who has to pack heat just to go grocery shopping. Mm. That's good. That's really yeah. good. That's really yeah. good. Oh, man. I might get that tattooed on my neck. That's good. <laughs> yeah. It, it really um, touched me when I when I read that. Yeah, I love that. Oh, man. Um, thank you for that news story, Beth. It was um, uh, horrifying. It was awful. Um, but, yeah. But we have to sort of keep talk keep talking about these things keep yes. pushing them as issues um and keep i can't saying why the hell are you not investigating this as a hate crime like oh yeah square one yeah where did you this know? happen send a letter in to dallas, the dallas, dallas texas, texas. Please. yeah yeah uh and uh whoever your senators are there and congress people yeah right yeah um okay um my news is about florida man is at it again uh suspected <laughs> of <laughs> it's yeah that's why uh, that's the that's the one funny part <laughs> they were talking about in our group about uh how the florida man meme is actually just poking fun at poor people but i still laugh every time i'm sorry i know i know I, we're sorry please forgive us please forgive us um uh the, so a florida man was suspected of killing his ex-girlfriend uh her six-year-old daughter and her aunt he turned himself in over the weekend um ernest sherizard is 38 years old is due to make his first court appearance on monday where he is expected to be charged on three counts of murder according to police sherizard shot six-year-old elizabeth fresnel her mother eli junior normiel 23 and normiel's aunt nicole gillam age 48 on Friday, Normil's relatives came to check on her at the Citrus Ridge apartment complex where she lived. However, Sherizard told them she was not there. Shortly after Normil's aunt showed up at the apartment complex, a confrontation began. During the fight, Sherizard allegedly brandished a gun and opened fire on the family. Gillum and Normil died at the scene while Elizabeth, who was shot three times, was transported to the hospital in critical condition. The child, again, she's six died the next day. Mm-hmm. Police say that um, Normiel and Sherizard, they were in a relationship. They had two children together, but um, Fresnel, the one who he, who he shot was not actually his child with her. Um, and then Sherizard fled the scene immediately after the shooting. During the early hours on Saturday morning, Sherizard appeared to acknowledge the killing on Facebook saying something along the lines of daddy's done something very wrong. And daddy is very sorry. Um, he turned himself into the police on Sunday afternoon, according to Haines city police department. Um, the police department said, the, now this is the part that I wanted to share, is this is a very tragic story, but the police department said the relatives have set up a GoFundMe account to help with funeral expenses. Um, if I'm able to, if I can find that link and uh, get my shit together, I will post it either in the show notes or um, somewhere on our social media page. So, um, yeah, that's pretty sad. Yeah. Um, but, uh I don't know if I, I don't know if I would, I, I certainly didn't hear about that story on the, on the um, national news. I found, I followed it on like, I find on like a black person online newsletter. And so that story popped up. So um, anybody who wants to help will ha- be, be able to do that. Um, next part of our show is the shout out section where we shout out any content by people of color or about people of color or any true crime goodies. Um, before I keep opening my big fat mouth, do you have anything, Beth? I don't. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, Guava Island is glorious. It's a short <laughs> 55 minute film. Um, you can get it on Amazon prime. If you have prime, then it's kind of free. Um, Guava Island is a musical film directed by Hiro Murai with a screenplay by Stephen Glover. That's Donald Glover's brother or AKA oh, Childish wow. Gambino's brother. Um, it stars Donald Glover and Rihanna. Ooh. Hey girl, Riri in the lead <laughs> roles of Denny and coffee um, respectively, and was first exhibited at Coachella this past weekend. Um, oh, wow. I think it was part of his set. Uh, it features some of the songs from his last album performed songs like this is America uh, feels like summer. 
Um, but anyway, it features songs from his al- his latest album, and um, it's like woven into the story, so it is kind of like a musical. Um, and um, it was so delightful. The colors were beautiful. There's just something about seeing like island life on on yeah, screen that's yeah. just like <sighs> relaxing. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, it was just beautiful, beautiful like images. Um, and there was all the cast was all black people, um, but all different kinds of black people from across the diaspora. Um, there were some Caribbean accents, and there were African accents, and American accents, and some some of them spoke Spanish, and some of them spoke French, and um, none of it mattered. They were all just out here on this beautiful island, just living and working and living their best lives. So. It was it's it's fifty five minutes. It's very short. Um, it's very good, and it's just a fun little fifty five minute trip. So I recommend Guava I'll have Island. To check that out. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. And then um, other one I wanted to shout out is a podcast I just found. Our girl Simenchi on Instagram said it's one of her favorites. So I was like, ooh, I gotta go check this out. It's called Murderous Minors Killer Killer Kids Podcast killer kids so it's a true crime podcast about bringing tales of killer kids factual stories of murderous children throughout the years a parent's worst nightmare um it's really well done fascinating stories i listened to a more recent episode it was episode 29 it's titled a night amongst many nights an interview with antonio esprit um he is a black man now but at the time he was a teenager who shot somebody that he didn't intend to shoot and he was sentenced to life in in prison um and Mm -hmm. tried it as an adult uh, put in an adult prison um as a teenager and uh he didn't have a good childhood he was poor he was black all the things we've talked about before on fruit loops right and he got lured it by the street and it chewed him up and um spit him out and now i don't think he's ever going to get out of prison but he's doing what he can to mentor young prisoners who had a life like his who come in to see if he can turn them around so that when they do get released um they get another chance at a better life so yeah um murderous minors killer kids podcast and that's all i got so Beth, All right. where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod, and links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash app, which you can download to your phone, or you can find online at cash.me forward slash dollar sign Fruit Loops Pod, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. We also have merch on our website now at fruitloopspod.com forward slash merch. That's right. Like and subscribe on iTunes also. Uh, This (laughs) is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's crazy out there. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them.
So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.